0: Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about the Vicenza Oro Fair, news about GCAL and IGI, and a possible end Chinon competes.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with...
2: Rob Bates, news director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from lovely New York City.
1: I heard it's rainy slash snowy. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, not
2: really, not really lovely right now, but it's okay. You sound hoarse a little bit.
1: Do I? I you know, no. I don't feel very hoarse, but I am kind of tired because I just came back yesterday from a solid week in Europe and it's a nine Mm -hmm. hour time difference to LA and just that journey back is, I don't know, it's just grueling.
2: And you uh, you were in just in Italy or anywhere else?
1: No, I I was also in Switzerland. So I flew to Vicenza or to Venice and then Vicenza is the hour west of Venice for the show. And I'll get to that because there is a lot to say about that show. And then on Monday, I flew to Geneva and went to an event with Jaeger and was up in the Swiss Europe. They're based in the Valley de Joux in a little village called Le Sentier, and it was so beautiful and so snowy. I mean, like thick, giant piles of snow everywhere. And that was nice, you know, kind of cognitive dissonance to be back here in sunny, brisk LA. So if I sound hoarse, it's just uh, all that coming down and out in my voice. But I'm feeling all right. Went to sleep very early last night at like 7.30. So I feel a lot
2: of this podcast is you talking about cool places that you go. And, you know, I usually say I went to Jersey or New York. That's basically.
1: Well, I have to remind you of your New Year's resolution. Yes, to I travel
2: do. more. Yes. Beyond uh, New Jersey. I hope to.
1: Yes. You need to get beyond New Jersey and I need to stay closer to home. That's yes, my, my resolution. Do. So we need to meld our particular travel styles right now.
2: But uh, it's great you went to Vincenza because it's a really important show. And uh, you said it was hopping.
1: It really was. I mean, I don't know what I expected because clearly the jewelry business has been on a tear for a few years now, but I think everybody's understanding that 2023 may mark the end of that crazy growth that we saw since the pandemic started in that, you know, people are getting a little bit more down to reality. There's still raging inflation. We still have a war in Europe. There's continued talk of recession, just a lot more gloom in the air than I think there was. There was more optimism kind of out in the zeitgeist. And so I came to Italy and really thought I'd feel that more at the show, a palpable sense of, if not pessimism, then a lot more cautiousness and uncertainty. And it really did not transpire that way. The show was packed. He spent a lot of time in Hall 7, which is where the luxury brands that are international and have export, many of them to the US, are located. But of course, there are lots of other halls. It's a very, very big and sprawling convention complex. And so it's hard to even find your way around. A lot of those brands that are showing there are Italian and they don't really market. They don't export yet or they export to Europe, but not to the States. So I kind of stuck to the brands like Roberto Coin and Damiani, Fope, the brands that a lot of our American jewelers will be familiar with. And they were really busy. It was, you know, one of those kinds of shows where you have to like dodge people in the halls and try to figure out how to weave between crowds. Um, The very craziest and busiest part of the show may have been Hall 9, which was T-Gold, the equipment and machinery complex where it's almost a separate, well, it's part of the convention complex, but you have to take a shuttle. And even the shuttle takes the convention complex was packed. And you get there and there's just no room to walk. People cruising around looking for every type of machinery possible, engraving and laser welding and all kinds of powder, metallurgical kind of machines that transform metal powder into 3D printed metal pieces. And so it was really interesting to see how thriving it was. And I did run into a couple of buyers from Benbridge and I saw I spied London jewelers there. Someone else said they noted there was a sales buyer there. Everybody seemed enthusiastic. So there was a, it was a very good vibe. And, you know, lest I forget to mention, it was the biggest Vicenza ever in terms of both number of exhibitors. There was something like on the order of 1300 exhibitors and attendance. Attendance topped the attendance in January, 2020, which as you all recall was the last regular Vicenza show before the start of the pandemic and they did have one in 21 last spring but it wasn't the regular January edition so the show has two editions January and September and January has historically been the really important one the one where all the new collections are introduced and the one that just tends to get more buzz even though it is certainly a not as nice a time to visit because September is obviously so nice in Italy so it's kind of a cold rainy time to visit but it is the big fair and I hadn't been for about 15 years so it was really nice to be back and yeah it was good to kind of feel how enthusiastic and exuberant the Italians are
2: What kind of stuff were people buying was it one of the kind of industry clichés is at the high end will always buy? Was it a lot of high-end stuff doing really well at the show?
1: You know, that's a good question. And I still need to connect with some buyers to get a sense of what was selling because my focus was more the high-end, just the people that have press teams and are available to send images, that kind of thing. So that's where I spent most of my time. I got the sense that most people did really well, but the high-end certainly. And in terms of trends, I'm still sort of connecting. One, one challenge with that show, and it was true 15 years ago, and it's still true, is just they, they're not often that aware of how to speak to the press. They're so busy. That's part of it. But they also, a lot of them don't speak English. So you come up to their booth, you ask to speak to somebody who might know something about the American press or how to coordinate with images and info and they its just not available so you know a lot of it is just getting a sense of what they are showcasing in their windows what you hear from other buyers very much bigger is better I mean we're in a time where volume and size and scale are back in a way that I think during the pandemic there was a lot of focus on smaller delicate things that people could layer that made more sense for people working from home and we're really seeing a return to like state pieces statement cuffs in particular you know there was a time when that stacking trend was very big where you'd see wrists with all kinds of smaller pieces stacked up for a bigger look well now I saw so many wonderful crazy statement cuffs and statement collar necklaces so it's this idea of like powerful big voluminous jewels and of course the Italians do that so well so it's not a stretch for them you know it's still early days the show just finished up on the 24th so and we're recording this on the 26th so I still need to kind of connect with people and figure out what specifically sold. But in general, the vibe was very, very good, very positive.
2: You know, we might as well. Do you want to talk about the other part of your trip?
1: So I carried on to see Jaeger-LeCoultre, as I mentioned, at their manufacturer in Le Santier in the heart of the Valley de Joux. Now, for People who aren't familiar with the brand, well, for one thing, it, it, the French name I, I can't really say I, I butcher it. Jaeger. Jager. Jager.
2: Jaegermeister.
1: Le, <laughs> yeah, let's go with Jaegermeister. I like that.
2: Jaegermeister Lacroix.
1: Jaegermeister Lacroix. So they are a very, very well-regarded brand, and they're known as the watchmaker's watchmaker. They've made the calibers and the movements in their manufacturer since 1833, the year they were founded, and they've often sold those movements on to other brands. So throughout The 20th century, their calibers were the ones that powered the watches of other watchmakers. So they have this incredible capacity and history of making movements. And they decided to capitalize on that by creating a collection of vintage timepieces. They've named it The Collectibles. They went back into their archives, identified 17 models produced between 1925 and 1974, I believe. 17 models that they felt were emblematic of their different innovations and, you know, different aspects of how watchmaking evolved throughout the 20th century. And they went out onto the vintage market to auction houses, to vintage dealers, and they sourced 12 of them. Apparently they could not find five of the others they identified through their archives. So they have this collection of 17 models, but 12 available for purchase. And um, it's really one of the first instances where we're seeing a Swiss watchmaker put a big initiative and effort behind selling vintage pieces. I mean, for all of time, since they've been concerned with selling new, that's how they make most of their money. There are a couple of watchmakers who've launched kind of similar initiatives, but this in my mind is the first really important one. So it's kind of like Rolex's certified pre-owned program, but in a much older, much more sort of smaller focused way. It's really focusing on these specific vintage models. And the idea is that, you know, when you are a buyer and you're looking for either vintage or new, and you understand that Jaeger validates its pieces. And I should also mention that all of those pieces that they bought off the open market, then return to the manufacturer, in essence, where they were born, because that's the very place they were originally manufactured. And, you know, the company has the same tools and the same archives, so they could really fix those pieces using the exact same components that they used to build them. So there's this sense that, you know, they're not just going out to some workshop where somebody's working on them, they're going back to the very workshop where they were created. It was really fascinating, and I think we're on the brink of a new era of modern-day Swiss watchmakers taking a lot more care with the pieces that have already been sold and are now may maybe resold again by them. So, you know, again, a, sort of a twist on the pre-owned story.
2: So uh, right now this is very limited. I mean, do you think this is something they will scale up? Or, I mean, do, do you think this is going to just be very limited.
1: Well, it is a continuing and evolving ongoing collection. From what I understand, the 17 models they identified from their history, including, of course, the Reverso, the model they're best known for, but also including a lot of other models that many people will find new and kind of crazy, really interesting stuff from the 50s and 60s, these watches that I'd never heard of. So those models will remain the same, but which editions of those models they will continue to look for. And they told me they may introduce new capsules that are, let's say a dive watch themed capsule or some dress watch themed capsule so it's scalable in a smaller way i don't think it'll ever be like again a huge money maker but i think it will establish them you know that that's it's one of the brands in the vintage and pre-owned space that i think has yet to get its due i mean you know all patek Audemars, rolex catch all the headlines on the auction market and among you know buyers of vintage pre-owned but because of its reputation as the watchmakers watchmaker i I think it, it's poised for a little more attention there. So I think this is all part of an effort to help establish that and clarify that for buyers out in the world. So we'll see. I think most interesting will be how other brands respond to it and what we see from other watchmakers. Vacheron, Constantine, and Zenith apparently have slightly similar programs, maybe not quite as sort of discreet as the collectibles collection from Jaeger, but I think we'll see more. So I'm looking forward to sort of what comes
0: next. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. With over 130 years of experience, the De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides expert online and in-person education across the diamond pipeline. Their range of courses is designed for all students, from industry newcomers to well-versed veterans seeking more specialist knowledge. Starting with their diamond foundation course and advancing to polished grading, synthetic diamond detection, and a range of specialist deep dive courses. They have all your education needs covered. Visit institute.debeers.com to explore their current courses.
1: I mean, I feel like I've missed a lot. I kept up with JCK's newsletter while I was gone. And I think the big news last week seemed to be that there was some lab acquisition. Tell us about that. It was IGI and GCal, correct?
2: Well, one was an acquisition. One is being put up for sale. I mean, it's interesting because grading labs, a lot of them do very big business, but they're considered this kind of small, nerdy niche thing and they, they, they're not something that you would consider like a big hub for m and and, you know, for people to buy and to put it for sale. But, you know, in the, I guess like the second week of January, we had two pretty big announcements. And the first was at GCAL, which is a diamond grading lab. And it's still, a, it's a relatively smaller operation than some others, but it's very widely respected. And, you know, it's known for its tough grades. And, you know, they're the only ones that offer what they call a true certificate in that they guarantee their grades. So, anyway, this lab, GCAL, has been bought by Serene, which is the big Israeli equipment manufacturer. And what was interesting is it, this happened a little after, you know, Serene. I had just done last year this story on AI diamond grading and the company that's really pushing it that feels it really has the answer and the solution and can basically grade diamonds by machines. That's Serene. And the way Serene has pitched it is that all this grading can take place in the factory. So you would, you know, you would go and you would cut the diamond, then you would put it on the machine and you wouldn't necessarily have to send it to a lab. What's interesting about this is that Serene is using a well-established lab to start rolling out this technology around the world. And it's good for GCAL because GCAL always said, if we expand internationally, we would worry that we couldn't keep up our standards. Now, by having this automated grading solution, we could keep up our standards. What's interesting is, as I mentioned, GCAL has this guarantee, so they guarantee all the grades, which is the only lab that really does that. And Serene has agreed that they're going to honor all those guarantees. So all the diamonds that are graded by Serene will carry this GCAL certificate, this GTAL grading guarantee. So it's, a, it's kind of a sign of confidence that Serene is showing in their system that they're willing to guarantee all their grades, that uh, at least the ones that are being issued through GCAL. I think the next day there was an announcement on Bloomberg and it uh, appeared in a couple other places eventually that IGI, which is a very, very big grading lab, which is the international is very big and lab grown in particular. They're being put up for sale. They've been owned by a Chinese company for the last couple of years called Fosin Group. And uh, I think that company's having some financial issues and is kind of selling... Some non-core businesses, and IGI is one of those. It's the kind of thing you're not a hundred percent sure who would be an eventual owner besides another conglomerate or another hedge fund. But as far as like a jewelry company, it's not 100% sure who would buy it. But it's uh, certainly a a well-known brand name in the industry, and uh, it seems to be a profitable, perhaps extremely profitable business. So we'll have to see about that.
1: Interesting. And just to go back to the GCal and Serene, and you mentioned your article on AI, and those were the two really opposing voices in that article. Yes. And so what do you make of that? Like that deal must have already been somehow in the works in the fall, no? Or he, did it-
2: I don't think it was. I mean, I, I asked him about that, and he said, uh, I yes. asked... Uh- Angelo, I should say, who's uh, you know, one of the people who owns the lab with his father and his his mom. And he said that, you know, the fact that they were willing to honor this certificate shows confidence in the strength of their grading, that they feel that they can match the standards, which G Cal will argue is just the GIA standards. They just feel that a lot of the other labs don't necessarily live up to it. And you know, he admitted he was skeptical, but he said he came around and he's confident in the final product. It's not going to be something that's going to happen overnight. It's something that they said they're going to work in. And even in the very idea of AI is continuous improvement in that, you know, it learns, Right, so it's not kind of there on day one, but the idea is the more it gets used, the smarter it gets. So yeah, I, I think it's a it's a really interesting move. And were you surprised? Yeah, I, I was a little surprised. I think it's an interesting way to kind of perhaps wean the industry or get the industry used to this concept of AI grading, which clearly is something that a lot of labs are looking at. And I don't think it's 100% proven yet. And I think there is a lot of skepticism, but um, it's an interesting way to kind of get it into the industry's bloodstream in a way and um the guys at gcal they always i would say they they razz me sometimes they they get <laughs> they get mad at some of the things i write but uh, you know but i i actually like them a lot and they're i think they're decent people and i'm happy uh, that they're doing well
1: yeah so. it's the palmieri's right
2: the palmieri's yes
1: yes yeah no they're lovely it's um father and son and yeah when i see them it shows they are lovely so you know, I did a for New York City Jewelry back in November, I did a panel discussion on AI and how it's going to play out in our industry. And I invited Matthew Tratner from serene, largely because he was, you know, had made some compelling arguments in the article you wrote. So they're obviously leading the charge. And I think AI will become increasingly important to people all through the supply chain in different ways, in ways that many retail jewelers and probably just can't anticipate right now or don't need to anticipate, but it's coming. So I do think if it makes the industry a little more conversant on how AI is working and what it's doing for our field, all the better. Well, there was one more news item that was interesting because it wasn't industry specific, but apparently the Federal Trade Commission issued a statement on non-competes.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, they want to basically ban non-competes. This was a story that kind of got a lot of attention in the business press. And uh, I was thinking of writing it up for JCK and I wasn't 100% sure because it wasn't jewelry specific. But, you know, it got a lot of attention and it, it got a lot of traffic to the site. So, I mean, I think it's a real... Every industry, people deal with this. And, you know, this used to be something that, like, just a CEO would get, right? And you can, you can kind of understand why they might offer it to the CEO of, uh, I think, the most frequent analogy is like, okay, if you're the CEO of Coke, you wouldn't necessarily say, okay, it's cool for that guy to, to be the CEO of uh, Pepsi right? You can, you can understand the logic there. Totally. But now it's like, you know, people like hairstylists and dog groomers and, you know, people who work in the jewelry industry. And I mean, the thing is, as we all know, most people don't read uh, employment contracts with a fine tooth comb. And, you know, now that these contracts with computers basically, you know, it used to be you had to have a lawyer kind of draft these things. Now you can just kind of cut and paste the language from anywhere. So people will sign these things and then all of a sudden they'll lose their job or they want to go to another place. Maybe they're not happy and then they have no way of making a living in their chosen field because they can't compete right you know if you're a if you're a doctor you can't all of a sudden join a, necessarily a, another practice you know which it, it doesn't necessarily make sense and you know there is concerns about ip and intellectual property and again that there are ways such as ndas and such as laws that are currently on the books like trade secret laws where you know you can enforce this so this would be a sweeping change in the economy and you know, it's, I don't think anybody necessarily knows what the impact would be. But in your state, California, they are actually already illegal. And California, Mm -hmm. as we all know, is the sixth largest economy, I believe in the world. And it's been a hub for innovation for a long time. So it's uh, interesting, you know, the courts could shoot it down. I think business groups are not necessarily happy with it. The way it's structured right now, uh, except for perhaps an acquisition, there's basically no loopholes. There's no way, no exceptions, no exemptions, right? Just just kind of bans them outright. So I think that's possibly at some point they may want to face some of those in. But um, I think they said one in five American workers are subject to non-competes. Wow. So,
1: And how soon might we see this actually take effect?
2: Well, uh, again, you know, there's almost certainly going to be court challenges. But, you know, I think the rulemaking, it could happen later this year. And actually, an interesting part of it is it not only bans them going forward, but if you're subject to one now, it just basically phases it out. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Well, good. Okay. Well, I'm not displeased about that news. I wish not NDAs would go out the window, too. They all feel so silly, especially it's one thing if you're talking about, like, sort of financial market news or things that are going to affect the wider world at large. But it's like, don't you trust me when I say I'm not going to share news about your watch collection before it's time? Just trust me, please. I mean, what are you going to go after me legally if I accidentally write a blog about it? I mean, it's all of it is very abused by now because I do sign NDAs all the time.
2: Really? I I've, I, I was only offered one for a story. I, re, I refused to sign it because, you know, it's like I'm kind of signing it on on behalf of my employer.
1: And then that feels somehow Yeah, wrong. I won't. Well, I, I just signed one today, so
2: okay there you go what was it about let's tell it let's break it let's Let's break
1: break it i had to sign it before i learned anything so i i can't even tell you what it's about it's just for the watch companies like to use them before they even share information with me as a press person and i'm just like really this is necessary this feels like highly unnecessary but i can't even determine what it is before because they need me to sign it before they share anything so it's just an annoying step especially if you're traveling because you got to print it out where are you going? you know if i'm in the air or somewhere i can't do it anyway enough kvetching one last thing I want to say before we wrap up is I am headed out yet again. My family hates me for all the time I leave them, and I'm getting pretty sad about it too. But I am heading out to Tucson for the gem shows next week. Actually, right about the time people are listening to this is when I'll be pounding the pavement at the gem shows, hopefully meeting up with a lot of people. It does seem like a lot of people are going. Lots of people complain to me about hotel rooms being sold out. And I booked mine months ago and couldn't stay in the hotel I normally stay at because the rates were so high.
2: Are you going to Centurion also?
1: I'm not. Centurion is taking place this coming weekend when listeners are hearing us talk about it. It'll have just probably wrapped up, but it was just too much because I just got back from Vicenza and I didn't want to leave again, especially on a weekend. I wanted to spend some time with Jim and Nico and my sister. And so I'm not. But from what I hear, lots of people are going. So I think it'll be a pretty busy week out in Arizona. So look for me and I'll be looking for you. And
2: We'll let everybody know how it goes.
1: Yes, we will. You can count on that.
2: All right. Good talking to you. You
1: too, Rob. All
0: the best. Looking forward to seeing you in March, hopefully. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.